we're back finally on what the funk i don't think i've recorded a podcast in like a month it's just crazy we had spring break last week i went to the quorum connections conference in las vegas which was amazing took my family to the mountains up in breckenridge went to the top of the mountain for a few days got to deal with my five-year-old crying because he fell 10 times and all of the crap dealing with snow and <laughs> and all that fun stuff but man it has been a whirlwind and this week was awesome this has been one of my favorite weeks that i've ever had actually in the oil and gas industry highlighted by the first ever digital wildcatters energy tech night in denver which i emceed 225 people attended super high energy for anybody who's listening definitely go to one of dw's energy tech nights it's like nothing you've ever seen in this industry they're playing rap music in the background they give out a large chain to the winner of the pitch competition six different companies go up they get eight minutes to present and two minutes to answer questions and then there's a lightning round at the end and the winner is determined by crowd applause so really really fun great energy, a lot different than, let's say, um, an SPE-related event. No knock on SPE, but those tend to be a little bit more formal. This is the opposite. So it Sounds was like, like there was alcohol involved. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> drinks, I do believe, come with the $50 ticket. So they'll be back here in Denver for sure. And then yesterday in Denver was Social Octane's uh, Rockies opening day event. So I got to throw uh, baseball and nearly throw out my arm to see how fast I could throw the ball. I hit 60 miles an hour. That was good enough for me. I didn't want to throw out my arm. I could throw 77 when I was 20. I'm not 20 anymore, and I definitely can't throw 77. But anyways, enough about me. Today is all about John Crone. We've got my guy, Joe Sinnott, checking in from Pittsburgh. A Jersey guy. He came on our first one, if you guys recall. We interviewed Dave Callahan. That was a great episode. And now we brought Joe back. And I thought with he and John Chrome, we got some big personalities. And, you know, frankly, we didn't have a ton of information about John. I just met him once at NAEP. So, like, personally, I had to Google Chrome. Ha ha ha. <laughs> bum, bum. Anyways. He's here all week. He's here all week. <laughs> I'm here all week. I'm probably going to take a nap pretty soon because this week has been exhausting. But anyways. Um, Did you actually write that down? Did you plan that or was that spur of the minute just now? I mean, let's, I thought about it maybe I five prepared that. Five minutes before. That's pretty good though. Thank you. Thank you. I had to Google Chrome, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, um, Joe, Joe, we'll get to you in a minute. But John Chrome, who are you, man? Tell the listeners on What the Funk. Who is John Chrome? Man of mystery. Mystery wrapped in an enigma. Uh, well, guys, it's it's great to be here. Uh, Jeremy, it was fantastic by chance connecting with you at um, the Nape show. I don't go to a lot of those and popping my head into the quorum reception. You know, really, I got to connect with a few people that I hadn't seen in a long time and a few new friends. So it was great running across you that's as cool. well. And um, that was a couple of months ago. And that's how I got here. Joe, it's nice meeting you for the first time as well. You're from New Jersey. I'm from Baltimore. So that's kind of close, you know, in the same general neighborhood. So um, I did grow up in Baltimore. I went to a prep school there called Friends School. And um, I was a three-sport athlete in high school, soccer, basketball, and lacrosse. 
Nice. And when it was, and when I was a kid, and I mean like in the fourth grade, look, I have a prop for you guys. My parents bought me the Time Life series of books. Now, you kids might not remember what books are, but there are these <laughs> physical things with pages. And this isn't the book, but I bought this on eBay a couple of years ago. And I was kind of hoping to see my name in it, but this wasn't the one. But this is the one that really caught my attention. It's called The Earth. And it had all these really cool pictures in here and maps and all kinds of stuff. You know, you got things like that. And I mean, I was hooked. I wanted to be a geologist from the fourth grade. So by the time I get to be a senior in high school, I'm writing those goofy applications about what do you want to be when you grow up and all that stuff. And I'm not kidding you. I said I wanted to be a petroleum geologist working for Exxon. Ooh, no kidding. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, that's some crazy shit right there. And I came close. I became an engineer for mobile. Thank God. And, um, you know, that's where my career went. So after high school, I went to a local college there called uh, the Johns Hopkins University. Small I little studied earth and planetary yeah. science. Small little local school. Maybe a few people have heard of it. Um, got an undergraduate degree in geology. I'm a little irritated, though pet peeve of mine the the course of study was called earth and planetary science but it was in the school of arts oh. i got a so i have a bachelor of arts in earth and planetary science Ooh. really irritating and i've taken a lot of shit for that over the years as well um i did was lucky enough to play four years uh for hopkins lacrosse as well we did win two national championships when I was there. That's cool. Which was a tremendous amount of fun, particularly being in my own hometown. Um, I came out in 1986. It was one of the downturns. <laughs> my advisor at the time said, look, maybe you should get into engineering. I was not a fantastic student. And I think that was his gentle way of saying, you ain't cut out to be a geologist, which was fine with me because... Um, you know, I'm not sure I was cut out to be a geologist. I ended up going to USC for graduate school in Los Angeles. So I got married and moved all within a few weeks after graduating college. And we started over in um, in the Valley. We lived in Sherman Oaks for two years when I went to USC grad oh, school. And I got a petroleum engineering master's in petroleum engineering from USC in 1988. Um, it was a big change. I went from Baltimore and I knew everything and everybody to L.A., and, you know, literally starting over. Um, and if you've ever lived in L.A., it, you know, it's really not a city. It's a city of cities. Um, I mean, I lived 21 miles from campus, which felt pretty far away. Yeah. I had a motorcycle at the time. I'm driving that I'm that nut job driving between lanes, you know, driving between cars just to get to school. Um Fast forward to graduation, I was lucky enough to get a job with mobile and ended up in Bakersfield, just north of L.A., a couple of hours, and lived in Bakersfield for 12 years. Um, worked in Kern County heavy oil fields for mobile for about nine years. I was an operations engineer in the field. You know, I was in the field every day at 530 until the afternoon. Um, I was production foreman. I was a reservoir engineer. And then I got caught by um, continuous improvement and total quality at the time, all the rage in the late 80s and the early 90s. Mobile became era. I only stayed on for another couple of years. By then, I'd been in Bakersfield for about 12 years. I was getting a little old. Um, 
you know, I mean, personally, some things were happening too. In 1999, I, I had been diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. The mood deepens. So yeah. I had cancer as a 33, 34 year old. I was a new dad. Uh, I had a big operation. I had uh, radiation, you know, and I, I, I reviewed my entire life 50 times over. You know, is this what I want to do? Is this where I want to be? And all that. And came to the realization I didn't. So with a wild hair, I moved the, the uh, family to Northern California, mm-hmm. about th- four hours north in the Bay Area, and worked for a small aerospace company for almost a year as their director of continuous improvement. And I hated it. <laughs> it was terrible. Um, part of it was my DNA had really already been cast into oil and gas. The language, the social norms, the language, all of it. I wasn't prepared for military specifications. I wasn't prepared for government contracting. I wasn't prepared for, you know, full-time auditing from big companies that were the customers like Boeing or the Air Force and people like that. Mm. We were doing some cool stuff. The company made jet cord um, and explosive bolts. Jet cord is the stuff that's wrapped around the windows of like an F-14. So, you know, in in, uh, Top Gun, when they eject and you see this explosion cut around the window, the canopy, that's called jet cord. And it's similar to perforating stuff, um, you know, similar to perforating charges in a way. It's linear in nature as opposed to spherical, which most perforating charges are. But I couldn't do it. And um, I got recruited by Anderson Consulting. And the next thing I know, I'm on the road for just about 10 years going from Northern California to Houston and back doing big, big six consulting for Anderson and Accenture, IBM, and then finally for Capgemini. And it was rough. I mean, I don't know if you guys have traveled professionally, but it was every Monday at 6 a.m. out of Sacramento, land in Houston Monday afternoon and do it in reverse on Thursday afternoon and get home Thursday night. And I did that for almost 10 years, Wow, which is crazy hard. Um, you know, I, I, you know, everybody, you know, particularly when you're young, you think traveling is so fun and it's luxurious. And particularly when you're just out of school, you think you're being rewarded, you know, you get to go on a trip and they pay for it and and they pay for it. And I have a hotel room all to myself. I don't have to share. I might even get a steak. I pay for my food. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's awful, right? I mean, that kind of stuff is awful. And it's different traveling to the same place versus traveling kind of randomly all over the world. Yeah. Uh, and yet it could always have been worse, but it was rough. I mean, I had young kids at the time, and it's never a good time to leave them behind. Um, so my last client at the time was a small company called BHP Billiton. Hmm. Um, a series of mobile refugees had landed there from ExxonMobil, um, particularly guys named like uh, Mike Yeager, Tim Cutt, uh, and my close friend, Rod Scoffel. And they were looking to build the company out. Um, they were just about to get into kind of bigger and better operatorship. They had their first project in deep water called Shenzi and then Neptune. And they were doing some big things in Western Australia. And they hadn't really been a, a, a sophisticated operator, and they wanted to up their game. And, um, and a job opening came up in Trinidad, of all places. And next thing you know, I became the operations manager in Trinidad. 
So packed up the family again from Northern California, went from Northern California to Trinidad and Tobago. Do you guys know where Trinidad and Tobago is? I, it's in the Caribbean, right? It is in the Caribbean. So it's the southernmost island in the Caribbean, just a few miles offshore of Venezuela. Okay. Um, Robinson Crusoe was supposed to have taken place in Tobago, actually. So it is in the Caribbean. But don't kid yourself. It's not the Bahamas with this kind of white powdery sand and azure blue water. It's it's quite industrial. Uh, oil and gas is there big, which kind of is related to the big petrochems that are there. A lot of ammonia, a lot of methanol uh, refineries as well. So, you know, it's quite industrial and it's partly on the Atlantic. So the seas can be very, very rough. So you just don't have that kind of you know, Caribbean experience. It's a different Caribbean experience. And they speak English, but for somebody coming from Northern California or Baltimore, you know, it takes a while to get used to. It's a very different dialect, although it's still English. Kids went to the international school and my oldest graduated from down there. And I, over time, became the acting country manager as my boss took on an assignment in Houston. I feel like I'm doing all the talking. Yeah, but this is all interesting stuff. Believe me, okay. I would cut you off if it was dry. Joe would too. We're not a okay. talk. Okay. <laughs> um, and that was also my first time really offshore. I'd been all kinds of stuff on shore. I spent lots of time in Bakersfield, you know, South Belridge, Midway Sunset. I'd been to the Permian. Um, yeah, I've been all over the continental kind of U.S. with mobile, you know, um, Big Piney and Pinedale and Western Wyoming and you know, other places as well, but I'd never been offshore. So it's the first time I had a helicopter. <clears throat> not a big fan of the helicopter. You know, a couple hundred flights later, still not a big fan of the helicopter. <laughs> um, left after a few years in Trinidad and went to the UK. BHP Billiton had bought, <clears throat> um, had merged, BHP and Billiton had merged. Billiton had bought a company called the Hamilton Brothers years earlier. Hamilton Brothers had a project in the East Irish Sea between Western England and Eastern Ireland. So it's on the UKCS, but it's not the mainstream um, North Sea stuff, which is generally on the east side of, of England. But it was, and it was very shallow water. I mean, low tide, we had one platform at 12 feet, Whoa. which is nuts. I mean, the mudflats are just, you know, they go forever. You've seen pictures of the really intense tidal situations in Northern latitudes and this is no different but it was still in the winter very very cold i remember horizontal icicles on the hand railings going out there and you know that that's a surreal you see snow blowing horizontally the icicles going one way it's like wow how the hell did i get here you know and i was the operations we're not bakersfield anymore toto no shit <laughs> well there it's the tumbleweeds you, you're ducking tumbleweeds <laughs> while you know out out by the pulling unit um, and then I became the country manager there for about a year as well. And the UK is kind of a neat place. I mean, we lived in a small town called Chester, which is a resort community in West Cheshire. It couldn't have been better. It was like living in Epcot Center for an American. There was cobblestone streets. We lived in a home that was built in like 1860. Um, you know, you parked a car and you wouldn't use it all weekend because you could walk everywhere. It was one of the three Roman outposts. In um, Roman Britain, in Britannia, it used to be called Deva, D-E-V-A, and it's a walled city. So you could park. We lived inside the walls, and it was fantastic. There was 
a bunch of soap operas in the UK that were filmed there. One popular one was called Hollyoaks. It was a big deal and it was filmed in Chester. So, you know, I was 100 feet from the cheese shop and 80 feet from, you know, pubs and restaurants. It was great. It was fantastic. But that time came to an end. And next thing you know, I told I was told my paycheck is going to finally be here in Houston. So by 2013, I had never lived in Houston. And I traveled here all the time for work, particularly those 10 years when we finally moved here uh, with BHP Billiton in Houston. And we had just bought Petrohawk. We were kind of digest that. And I became the operations manager for the South Texas Eagleford. And at the time, we had about 100 people on, on staff, mostly from Petrohawk. And over the next year, I mean, that grew to 250 people in operations. So, I mean, I had three level operations staff under me. That's how big the teams were. Um, anywhere from Victoria all the way out to Tilden. I was just, you know, I mean, Eagleford is huge. I mean, these shale oil fields are really not oil fields. They're oil fields of oil fields. I mean, just the size of them makes them so different. You know, it's crazy. Um, and then a few years later, became the global head of operations, maintenance, and improvement. So it was a central job. It was a functional job. I had oversight for things like standards and career development and, um, you know, risks and audit and things like that. And then I left in 2018. Um, they were going a different direction. You know, I'd been there about almost 10 years. I just wanted to do something different. So I did. Um, about a year later, year and a half later, I went back to Capgemini, did more consulting. And then about a year and a half ago, I left Capgemini and became um, um, the executive director for oil and gas at Oracle. So I'm kind of like the oil and gas guy at Oracle. Mm. I'm not a technologist per se. You know, I don't do development and coding and implementation and things like that. But, you know, I do things like points of view and thought leadership. I uh, evaluate trends that are useful to our technologists and our sales teams. And I translate oil speak to tech and back, you know, things like that. I do enablement. So I help our salespeople become better in the industry so they can learn more about our customers and their needs. And that's what I do now. I've been working home for about three years. As you can see, a wonderful home office. Yes, sir. So that's me. Whoa. Well, okay. There's a lot to unpack here. And the first thing there's a I lot have there. To say, the first thing I have to say, 18 minutes and Joe Sinnott hasn't said anything. This is the longest he's ever gone in his entire life without speaking, for the record. Well, it's funny, Jeremy, because a lot of people say, well, what do you do as a coach? You know, what, what, what is a coach, executive coach, leadership coach? The irony is, as much as I could talk nonstop for hours, as a coach, my job is to ask questions and then shut up and listen. So yeah. it was actually very enjoyable having someone, I don't have to poke and prod to hear his story, to, to have him offer, again, uh, countless nuggets of information and insights that now we get to dive into. So uh, again, as ironic as it is, as somebody with a podcast, I can get out there and talk. Uh, my day job is actually to listen, Jeremy. But nevertheless, I, I agree with your assessment. That probably was the longest I went without talking. <laughs> I tell it very well. I tell it very well. You know, admittedly. Yeah, that's a. So, oh, but that being said, I mean, as far as questions go, I mean, let me say this here again. I had a lot, a lot of, lot of uh, thinking going on there. I mean, John, you just stepped through. You know, a great story, lots of detail. But before that, in my own googling and looking at your resume and LinkedIn and everything else, you know. The word change came up a lot, you know, change management, management of change, change communications. I saw you wrote an SPE paper talking about, you know, the big crew change. So 
I, you know, as I listen to you, again, there's so much that comes out in your conversation and, and your story that obviously you're not going to get from the data from from reading through a resume or LinkedIn, the personal changes, right? I mean, health changes, obviously changes of location from you know East Coast to West Coast. So is there one guiding principle, piece of advice, something that you would give to your family, clients, you know, and your managing teams to manage change of all sorts? Because you've been through a lot. So anyway, that's my, my one burning question here. And then I'll shut up for the next 18 minutes if that works for you both. Well, that's a big question. And there's a bunch of different dimensions to that. So I'll try to break it down into compartments. You know, the male brain can do compartmentalization quite easily. So, you know, in the workplace, I've done a lot of change work. Um, I've had roles <clears throat> with the title continuous improvement in it or transformation. I think it's four times now. And a part of helping teams go through real improvement processes um, implies a certain level of change or large scale corporate wide change and also change at a very singular individual level. And I was lucky enough to be exposed to this domain <clears throat> by somebody who did this really well. And it was part of the Cal Resources mobile merger that became ERA in 97. We'd had um, a professional change manager work with my team and I was leading the change management team, but we had an advisor ourselves. And, you know, she was fantastic. And she had done a lot of work, <clears throat> strangely, uh, with grief counseling and the changes human beings go through with loss. <clears throat> and had and she was one of the first people that had done the mapping or the distinction of the different phases of change, whether there's five steps or seven steps. You know, she was the one that started that, you know, where you first have, you know, there's the resistance and then there's the panic and the you know, and, the, you know, you, and then the trough, you know, where you, you get depressed, but then you come out of it. She was the first one to kind of codify that. And we applied that very successfully at ERA because for so many people, they were losing their mobile identity or they were losing their cow resources and shell identity and they were creating something new. So change always involves some version of loss as you abandon the old and you look forward to the fresh. And, you know, I got I wouldn't say I got great at it, but I certainly got skilled at being able to do that over time. And there are some very tactical steps that she was able to show us and I've carried with me today. What are the things I must do to get a group of people to successfully change? And there's a list you can go through. Uh, some people say there's seven, some people say there's nine, but there's a very basic list. And if you stick to that quasi formula, it will increase your likelihood of success of creating change. Now, this is always... Um, provided that there's literally no burning platform. So, you know, we're talking about change in the corporate environment. It could be layoffs. It could be new technology. It could be a different business process. It could be reorganization or layoffs. But when we talk about an emergency situation, which I've been involved in plenty of those as well, and incident command and things like that, all that shit goes out the window. That doesn't matter, right? You're thinking yep. about preserving life, uh, preserving community, preserving equipment. So you don't have time to go through that in all honesty. So the change we're talking about is, you know, a little more docile. So, you know, that's one dimension of it. Personally, um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at change because of the work that I've done inside. In my career, it never intimidated me moving from one domain to another. And you can see I've got a bit of an, an odd resume. <clears throat> an engineer has spent a lot of time in continuous improvement. 
that got into operations in a deep way, spent many years in the field and offshore, um, but is also, you know, kind of hovered in the, with technologists and systems integrators and management consultants and, you know, now working for Oracle. So to a degree, I feel like I have an identity crisis. My resume looks like I have an identity crisis, but I always did what I'd liked to do and thought contributed to making oil and gas. If you look at the roles, it's all in service of something very simple, helping people be more successful, particularly in oil and gas, whether it's making more production, reducing expenses, being safer, having greater you know, facility integrity, whatever the case is, it's helping people be more successful in oil and gas. I've dabbled a little bit into non-oil and gas stuff. <clears throat> the aerospace company is an example. Had a couple of smaller projects in consulting for say, um, you know, I worked for SoCal Gas for three or four months. I did something <clears throat> with a chemical company called Oddfiel for a few months. But generally speaking, it's always been oil and gas. BP four times, Marathon, Conoco, Shell, you know, the list goes on. So great. Thank you for that. That was that was awesome. There's there's something here that that I want to touch on that I feel like I've heard as a theme throughout a number of conversations that I had. So you did the whole Bakersfield thing for 12 years. And, and obviously, I'm glad that you survived your health scare. That's, that's fantastic. Um, cancer is no joke. You. And then you decided you wanted to break out of oil and gas. But you came back. And I've heard this so many times <laughs> from people that they're like, I, re- I just want to do something else. Like, what was it that pulled you back in? What's so different and unique about the oil and gas industry? Because I have my own theories, but I want to hear it from you. Um, gosh, I never really thought about that. You know what? This is, I feel like I'm in therapy right now. I hope you're happy, Joe. You know, I'll, I'll send you the invoice. <laughs> but I need to be very careful as a coach. I, I need to make a, draw a very big distinction between therapy and coaching, very different animals here. So that's my legal <laughs> disclaimer that I obviously have to put that out there. Yeah, for, uh, you say so. I'm, I'm glad that you're, I think, I don't know if I heard the word enjoying it, but I hope you're enjoying it. So. Yeah. I've had, I've had plenty of coaches make me cry. So well done. <laughs> um, what drew me back in? Well, um, this is not a great answer, but one aspect was there's certainly a level of comfort after 12 years, you know, and being in that aerospace company that I knew. So for that year, I, I think I had dishonored my prime directive, which was help people make oil and gas in some material way. You know, that was my prime directive was to help oil companies be more successful and people be more successful. So I was trying to reinvent myself in a way that just kind of was inconsistent with really what I love to do deep inside. And although I was open to learning new things and all that stuff, you know, in the end, it was it was the proverbial square peg round hole. So some of it was just comfort. It would have taken me many, many years and lots and lots of unhappy nights, you know, to get that comfortable in the aerospace and defense industry. And in particular, you know, I was working with a sub of a sub of a sub. I mean, we were so far down the food chain for, you know, OEM suppliers into aerospace and defense, you know, we were kind of irrelevant. Um, You know, we made these teeny little components in this massive structure. And although it was very important, very critical, you didn't feel like you were really making a difference. And maybe that's an aspect, you know, in oil and gas, I felt like I had the influence to make a difference between my my background and my capability, you know, I felt like I could make a difference. And in the company and the situation I was in, 
you know, I, I really couldn't. I joined that company when they had 450 people in the next year, 10 and a half months. They went down to about 290 people. And that wasn't a lot of fun. So it was a new industry. It was a new town. It was new faces. And they were downsizing. Hmm. So some of it was being drawn back into the oil industry, but I really did never felt like I was comfortable or, you know, really had planted roots in that particular company at that time. And I enjoyed it. You know, I mean, there's nothing like, you know, being a, well, for me, I mean, I loved being out at the rig site. I was an operations engineer, completion engineer, production foreman. I mean, I love being in the field. You know, listening to that sound of the pulling unit, you know, that sound of the tubing coming out of the hole mm-hmm. and being stood back, you know, it's like this, this wine, this ring almost, you know, like it's one of those um, Tibetan uh, cups that you, you rub, you know, with the circle, <laughs> it's got this time to it when tubing comes out of the hole and is stood back. And I miss that kind of stuff. We're going into a facility and, you know, there's a certain smell in every oil facility you go into. In Bakersfield, it's very unique, but, you know, it's also very unique in Eagleford. When you go offshore, you can kind of smell something as well. So it was you put all that stuff together, and I really did miss the oil field. Well, I guess that being said, the logical Make question is, of all the places that you've lived and worked, John, which ones have smelled the best? <laughs> <laughs> Where's it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we transitioned to lightning yeah. round questions, and that, that wouldn't have been yeah. one of them, but... The inner, the inner the harbor best, of best smelling place that you've, uh, you've been to. Yeah, the inner harbor of Baltimore, <laughs> circa, circa 1982. <laughs> um, you know, when you go offshore and, you know, you're way up, you know, you're, in, you're in front of the wind, and you look out and you're on the railing, I mean, it's just pure ocean. I mean, you could be on a vessel, you could be in a rowboat, but I mean, you've got this big blue sea in front of you. It's perfectly clean, you know, because you're so far out there. And, you know, you got the wind in your face and it's nothing but just that fresh, salty air. And it's pretty overwhelming. You look down, you see all the fish and there's always tons and tons of fish traveling around, um, you know, all kinds of rigs, whether it's a fixed platform or a floater of some kind. And, you know, you look up and you're like, wow, this is something special. That's great. Uh, you, dan- you danced around the question there, but I'll accept. I'll accept. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I did. I did. And I said, <laughs> offshore, <laughs> when you can get into the wind and you don't smell the actual okay. oil facilities, you know, that's the best place to be. All right. All right. Well, I, sec- I, mean, I second that. Say, I love H2S. <laughs> so with, with all of these different places that you've lived, what transition to sports, have you kept your rooting interest with Baltimore teams? Have you picked up teams as you've traveled? I feel a little, uh, I feel, I feel a little guilty about that. I yeah, so when I was a freshman at Hopkins, um, <clears throat> The owner of the Colts left Baltimore in the middle of the night in the buses. And that was kind of the first real kind of kerfuffle about a major sports team leaving a major city. And they did it in the middle of the night. And there was, yeah, that's right. Those Mayflower vans. That's exactly right. They came to Goucher College, which is where the Colts would train. And they loaded everything up in the middle of the night. It was supposed to be very secret. So, you know, I was kind of a Colts fan up until then, and it was hard to stay as a Colts fan. Believe it or not, I think there are still, this is crazy talk, there's like a Colts marching band still in Baltimore, 
which is really crazy. I mean, who are these people? I mean, it's like 40 years ago. Really? 40 years ago. So, and, you know, the Ravens, they were really never my team. They, they're fairly recent history. I was a huge Orioles fan. I mean, I went to like 20 games when I was a freshman, 1982, 83, and the Orioles won the championship or the World Series with Cal Ripken. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then I went to grad school in 86 and I lost my way. And they moved to Camden Yards. And I really haven't kept up. Um, moving to Northern California, you know, I did see a fair bit of Giants games. I'm not sure I ever really call myself a Giants fan. Um, living abroad, you know, it's hard. Trin- Trinidad's main sport is um, cricket, which mm. is the most boring sport of all time. And, you know, you've got matches that last five days, but you have shorter ones that last a few hours. Even the short ones are brutally boring. Um, in England, I was a big soccer fan, and, and shamefully, I never got to a big match like Man U or Man City, even though we were somewhat close, or Liverpool, partly because I was I was the country manager, kind of the boss, and it was really tribal. And the first thing people asked me when I got there was, okay, are you Liverpool or Man City or Man U? It's like, uh, are you Bloods or Crips? Uh, you know, it's like you're going into prison, and you got to pick a gang. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get back to you on that. So I just wanted to go to a game, but I knew if I did, I was going to have to live with the fallout from the the, the other team that I didn't feel like dealing with. Uh, here in Houston, not so much a big sports fan. Gone to my share of Astros games, which is always a good time. Sat in the box for a fair bit of Texans games. Um, you know, so I'm not a big sports fan. Um, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu still. You know, I'm 58 and I'm still doing it, so... You know, I spend more time doing stuff, you know, working out and doing jujitsu than I do actually watching sports. Yep. Um, and Houston's actually a great place for Brazilian jujitsu. Did the digital wildcatters nice. guys? So when you say you lost your way when you went out west, I assume that just that's associated with going out to USC. I mean, am I, I'm a little bit biased here, but it sounds like once you showed up there at Southern Cal, you say, hey, you know, this this. No good from a sports standpoint. Again, this is coming from the Notre Dame perspective. So yeah, I'm watching. I'm watching you, pal. I see you. I see you. Yeah, and OJ being from USC didn't help, right? That was never great. Um, it wasn't so much. I, I mean, I just I lost my connection to Baltimore and the Orioles. So you know, that was when I say I lost my way. But I like what you're saying, Smarty Pants, about Notre Dame. Your time will come, and if I remember, this was a tough year for Notre Dame. So you know, we'll see what happens. You know, it's actually, I, think, I think it's actually been tough for Notre Dame since you were out there. I believe. I think 1988 was the last uh, actual s- significant sign of, uh, of life. There's been some smoke and mirrors since then, but um, ouch. And this season had their ups and downs, right? Hasn't it hasn't been smooth sailing. So, John, one of the things I like to do here, and Joe, I, I'm throwing this at you as a little bit of a surprise, is a lightning round. I like to put our guests on the hot seat where I say a word or a phrase, and you have to say the first thing that comes to mind. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. Yes, yes, yes. Now you're making me nervous. The first one, BHP ability. Too big for its britches. Hmm. Too big for its britches. Okay. Yeah, BHP was 
Yeah, it was like the boa constrictor that tried to swallow the meal that was too large. And that was BHP and Petrohawk. And, you know, we bought Petrohawk. And, you know, next thing you know, we had 45 rigs trying to develop reservoirs we really had never characterized or properly evaluated. It was just nuts. Absolute nuts. So Petrohawk made out like a bandit. BHP was left holding the bag. It was, it was tough. Yeah, they, they really did. Okay, next. Bakersfield. <clears throat> Parole. <laughs> oh, I mean, God. I did 12 hard years, 12 hard years of hard time in Bakersfield. And I did feel like, you know, when I, when I was able to get out, I felt paroled and all the people, you know, I had a good buy party and all that. And, um, you know, it was, it was like leaving people in prison, you know, that you, you got out and they still had to stay and they still had to be on good behavior. I mean, Bakers, Bakers, and this is many years ago, Bakersfield has changed since then. But the best thing yeah. about Bakersfield at the time was it was close to other stuff. Santa Barbara, two hours, Mammoth, four hours, LA, two hours. So you could get to places. You didn't have to stay there. Today, there's more in Bakersfield. It's a bigger city. But at the time, there wasn't a tremendous amount there. It was it was yeah. under 200,000 people, I think. Parole. Joe, I'm going to let you ask one in a second. But here's one. Oracle. Um, the future. And I say that because... Um, the Oracle's taken a very different approach to some of its technology. Some of it's based on cloud storage. Some of it's based on solutions as a service. You know, the SaaS product, software as a service, SaaS products. And not everybody's doing that. Some of our biggest competitors are moving to cloud storage, but it, it's really not a, a SaaS product, which is interesting because everything you do in your own life today, when your own phone, is SaaS. You don't load anything. You don't buy anything. You use it when you need it, and the, and the provider of that tool or that product upgrades it behind the scenes on your behalf, and you know things. And there's no training required because it's so easy to use. And Oracle's adopting that for bigger business systems. So I got a lot of faith in the future of Oracle. I like that. And my final one before I throw it to leadership. You. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I was up. Well, I decided I had another one. <laughs> And it's my podcast, Joe. So I get to do what I want. We know. You know, you know what's funny? I was about to hit mute. There was some. There was some. Uh, some rumbling going on in the background. I should have just uh, trusted my instinct and just sat there on mute for a little bit. <laughs> We've talked about this, Joe. My podcast. I get to do whatever I want. Just kidding. Um, the final one before we, before he answers leadership is Art Modell. Schemer. Mm. For those of you that don't know, Art Modell was the owner of the Colts at the time, and he's the guy that crafted this this scheme to get everything out in the middle of the night, uh, out of the view of the public and the media cameras, and it didn't work out so well. He's the guy that ended up leading them to uh, Indianapolis. Um, he's not a big popular guy in Baltimore, even to this day, so I'd say schemer. Joseph, your turn. Kind of a scumbag. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to switch things up. Just, you know, keep things fresh here in the lightning round. You, you can't you can't have anybody thinking about it for more than a second. So, Ripken. Hmm. Greatest of all time, baby. Goat. Total goat. 
And, you know, he brought a certain class, an old school class to the game, you know, all those years and all that money. You never saw him in the tabloids or doing something unsavory. So just pure class, right? Sounds good. All right, let's go back to the leadership one. Leadership, John. Situational. Um, you know, so many people talk about it like it's a simple thing, like it's this monolithic thing that doesn't change. And that's not really the case. Years and years ago, um, as a part of one of the many leadership trainings, you know, I learned about situational leadership and that stuck with me to this day. And you really have to tailor your leadership to the environment and the people you're leading. So, you know, you as a parent of young children, seven, eight, nine, expresses parenthood leadership differently than you do to a young teen at 13, 14. Mm. That's different than what you do the first time they come home from college, 18, 19, right? Your parenting is different based on the situation, the capability of the people following you, your kids, and the situation. And that's no different than in the workplace. You, you hire a brand new team that don't know what they're doing. They haven't done this before. You treat them differently than you would an experienced group that needs just a little care and feeding in a run and maintain world. Um, you know, you have to express yourself differently in an incident command situation where lives are on the line versus, you know, something else. So you've got all these different factors and you need to be able to adapt as a leader and, and fit it properly. There's so that if you, if you think you're going to be the same leader in these variety of different situations, then you're doing something wrong in some of those situations. You're failing your constituents in some way in some of those situations. So you got to change gears. You got to turn the dial in some way. And you've got to show up differently because the situation demands that. That's not to say you, you, you get to be a chameleon and do whatever you want at all times. It means you have to adapt to the situation. Nice. So I have, I have one more, Jeremy, if we got time for that. Probably related to the last one, but sales, John, sales. Harder than it sounds. I'm kind of new to the sales stuff. I do sales enablement. Um, but there's more to it. And, you know, particularly in the oil field, it doesn't have a great rep. You know, we think of the, the, the proverbial chemical salesman or the schlumberger salesman taking everybody to lunch, you know, time for the mullet to show up. <clears throat> and that's kind of old school, particularly now that so many people are working remotely, you don't get to see as much of that as possible. But even when I was a young engineer, you know, I certainly had a view of what sales looked like from the outside and being sold to. Now that I'm helping sell to, you know, I have a different perspective. Now, I'm not selling to generally operations managers and production engineers, but I'm selling to CIOs and CFOs and, you know, people like that. And it's harder than it sounds, you know, you can't always get inside their head. You can't always meet them on their terms. You're making a lot of guesses. Um, what you sell is necessary and sometimes even valuable. They might not always see it like that. So it's, it's harder than I thought it was. I have more respect yeah. for the sales groups, the Oracle than I ever expected. Hmm. You know, I, that one, you got me thinking with that one, Joe. Because obviously I've been a sales guy for well, my whole life, but professionally for 20 years. And, and there's, it's first of all, it's the lifeblood of any business. And it's generally the last to go when you're doing large scale layoffs because salespeople produce revenue, at least the good ones. Um, but Jordan Belfort, right? Wolf of Wall Street guy, feel however you want about him. He has a phrase that I've taken, yeah. which is 
nothing happens till something gets sold. <laughs> I mean, in any business, nothing happens till something gets sold, right? So it's also the lineage to any true business being successful, whether you're selling motherboards or whether you're selling a, you know, a, a, a wrench to a, you know, to a oil and gas services company. Nothing happens till something gets sold. And it's important to remember that too, in terms of how you treat your people. Um, because a lot of times sales is just treated with you're an order taker, right? I'm going to put you under as much stress. You're just simply a number, but there's a lot that goes into it. And the best salespeople that I know, they're trusted advisors, but more importantly, they're very, very good listeners. So Joe, I think part of why you've had so much success is because you are a fantastic listener. Of course, you got the gift of gab. You can listen, my man. Before we wrap up here, I want to jump back to Cal Ripken. So can Cal I, can Ripken, I go back to that? Because I think you touched yeah, on something. Yeah. There's something interesting in what you said. You know, you think about sales, and I, I totally agree with that. But what ends up happening, particularly in commodities industries, upstream is a good example. You know, you think about the proportion of people in the in the company that are sales oriented. It's very small. So in most commodities, you know, there's there's a built-in existing market that you're honoring. And clearly, somebody's got to do the transaction. Somebody's got to convert that barrel crude to a dollar or to a contract. But it's just a small part of what the existing enterprise does. And coming out of upstream in particular, I didn't have an appreciation for what you're describing in most other normal businesses, which is sales. You know, whether I was creating, um, you know, frozen concentrated orange juice or, you know, fishing for bluefin tuna, you know, the sales aspect of that is much smaller than you know and what we're describing great point great point yep i mean and, and certainly now that you're in the tech world like this this comes back to your answer on oracle you see it differently right i mean there's there's oh, processes totally. there's tactics right it's not just like oh you've got something i like i'm gonna buy it well so what right when how much you're gonna spend who's who's the one that signs off on it right um tough questions that are uncomfortable for a lot of people to ask um, even myself as a younger sales guy. And this is some of the training that I do consistently with my kind of younger CEO technical uh, founders where they're like, oh my God, I've got the greatest thing since sliced bread. Why does nobody want to buy it? I'm like, well, you're not taking them through a, a buying process. You're just showing them something and hoping that they're going to get it. <laughs> and it's just not that simple. Um, okay, so on Cal Ripken, one of my favorite players of all time, and I think that the view of Cal Ripken has changed over time, where he's just sort of been viewed as, oh, big deal. He just showed up to work every day. He wasn't that great. He just came to work every day, and he never took a day off. And maybe he was even selfish because he did that. Maybe he hurt the team, right? But my view on it is this guy was the first one of the mold of the eventual Derek Jeter's Alex Rodriguez, Nomar Garcia-Par, the six foot four, 200-pound athletic power-hitting shortstop. He played in an era where shortstops could keep their job if they hit zero home runs and played really good defense. Kyle Ripken Jr. could hit 30 home runs, right? And that was still playing every day, and he could play gold-glove defense. So the narrative on him has, him has shifted, and he's one of the players when I love baseball. He's one of the players to me that I like to use as a lightning rod in conversations with other people who know baseball well. And this is typically one thing that pisses people off. I always say this, 
people talk about Pete Rose. And I say, yeah, he was a great player. Cal Ripken was better. And people that didn't watch both of them play say, no, no, he's not. Pete Rose had more hits, okay? Hits is the most important thing, this and that. But then if you actually dig into the numbers and you look at the stats, Cal Ripken was probably a better baseball player, but Pete Rose had this, well, I'm Charlie Hustle and I'm tough and I'm going to, you know, play within whatever rules and confines. I'm going to go in spikes up. And Cal Ripken, you know, he's just sort of a nerdy guy. But then you start to look at the stats and, you know, people originally are like, I don't know, if I'm, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. But then you dig into it and from the advanced statistics perspective, and even from the traditional counting stats perspective, Cal Ripken was a better player than Pete Rose. And I think people really have a hard time hearing something like that because it goes against what they believe. They want somebody who toes the line. Cal Ripken never towed the line. He played every single game, right? And maybe he you know, wasn't. He, he also kept it on the field. He kept it on the field. You he, know, didn't he didn't have himself. this. He, yeah, he didn't promote himself, and he didn't have this kind of tabloid existence outside of baseball and outside the team. So, you know, everything he did shined a light on what happened, you know, in those three hours on the field. And that was it. That's how you got to judge Cal Ripken is what happened that day on the field. So, he, you know, he did himself favors by letting that happen. He may have been better than Derek Jeter, too. How about that? Just saying. Anyways, we don't need to, to wrap Just it up saying. on baseball. I want to give you a chance, Joe, uh, John, sorry, before we close this thing out. You've been in oil and gas for all intents and purposes for almost 40 years. I want you to give me oh, some gosh. thought process and insight into what does oil and gas look like for the next five or 10 years? Because we're seeing significant shifts. Even just this energy tech night that I yeah. emceed the other night, half the companies on there were, for all intents and purposes, sustainability technology companies, not your traditional oil and gas tech companies. We're talking about ESG tech. We're talking about sustainability. We're talking about the conversation around climate change. So I'm curious from you, you've been in this game for a minute, you're going to stay in this game. What does oil and gas look like in five to 10 years? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, yeah, that's the question these days, isn't it? And yeah. this is not the first time we've asked ourselves that about oil and gas. You know, there's always some big event that makes us ponder our navel in profound ways every 10 or 20 years or something like that. Um. I'll start with saying, you know, there are some lessons for us to examine. And you think about when liquid fuel, crude oil took over for coal, you know, 120 years ago, 140 years ago. You know, there was a transition where oil was displacing coal. And here we are, we still use a tremendous amount of coal. Um, so, you know, what was at the time a displacement ended up being kind of side by side for many, many years to come. And I think there's an aspect of that that will unfold on its own as well in that I don't really, unless there's a quantum leap in deployable technology, <clears throat> and I'm talking about, you know, a Mr. Fusion, the size of a Mr. Coffee, like in Back to the Future short of something like that, you know, we're going to see oil and gas stretch on for a number of decades. And there's reasons for that. One is, 
Um, you know, the rest of the world, and, and you think about the people that have Teslas as an example. It ain't the Po folks, right? Teslas and electrical vehicles and hybrids even are a luxury for upper middle class and above. So for many, many years around the world, you're still going to have older vehicles that require liquid fuels. That's just a fact. So people around the world, particularly in developing countries, don't have the luxury of buying a new vehicle or converting to a hybrid or something like that. And many of the cars on the road today are still going to last for many, many years and need liquid fuel. Um, <clears throat> number two, products I don't get think talked about enough. Something like 40 to 45% of most crude goes to plastics and related things. And if you just look around your own office for a second, you know, all that shit, right? The microphone in front of you, there's probably pieces of the arc behind you or the frames behind you that have petroleum products. The desk that your computer sits on, the computer is full of <laughs> petroleum, right? Uh, look, you know, it's black. Maybe that gave it away. Um, and the same with natural gas. As much as I hate those damn styrofoam peanuts that come in those boxes, packaging and things like that are going to be here for some time. Doesn't mean I like it, but, you know, gas is a huge factor in material creation, as is crude. So I think that you're going to have to tolerate a lot of production for a long time, even if you're not burning, you know, the fuel. And what ends up happening is, you know, it's going to be hard to tailor an oil and gas upstream industry for just the needs of manufacturing. Yeah. You know, because if you turn down, turn down, you know, like turning down a pump or a compressor, if you turn down the oil industry itself to that level, it's going to get very expensive. So you still have the same cost structure, particularly for fixed costs of half the production. You know, manufactured goods are going to get really expensive if you can't use some of that production and sell it for liquid fuels and other purposes. So I think it's going to be here for a long time. I love the sustainability stuff. Upstream companies are going to get really good at scope one and scope two management. You know, they're going to learn how to make crude and natural gas with a very, very small carbon footprint. That's a good thing. I think our suppliers for scope three incoming will also figure this out and the mm -hmm. supply chains will get lower, lower carbon. In the end, we're still selling carbon. That's what this business is. And we're going to have to grapple with that for a long time, even as these other technologies get off the ground. And in essence, they're going to coexist for many years to come. Really good and answer. scene. <laughs> and as we do here, Joe, when you come on, I want to give you the final word, the final 30 seconds of this platform. Say whatever it is you feel like. Well, I feel tremendous gratitude for once again coming on the show and in particular getting the chance to meet John and hear his story and his thoughtfulness. You know, the beauty of these conversations, Jeremy, is that they're not scripted. They're meant to be out of the ordinary. And, you know, to hear an authentic, honest story with plenty of personality from John. I mean, there's just so much there to unpack, not to, to tie back to his packing peanut uh, uh, comments there. But, I mean, you can continue unpacking a simple conversation like this and, and continuing to ask questions. And I think, you know, we need to do more of that in our industry, right? Shutting up and listening to people like John who have done a lot, who have seen a lot, who have worked with a lot of different people. And I think this is a great forum to do that, Jeremy. And I appreciate the invite and appreciate your time here 
as well, John. So with that, thanks to everybody listening and to both of you. And let's go, Bucks. All right. Thank you, guys.